The second reading is from James chapter 13, verses 5 to 6. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the days of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Thank you, Polly and John, for reading to us. Um, We are in a series in James. We've been in James for uh, six weeks or or more now, and uh, this is the point we've got to. But I actually want to cheat and read the first sentence of next week's verses, if I may, chapter 5, verse 7. You may not have access to a Bible to find it, but if you choose to, this is what it says. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming, because the future return of Jesus Christ is what James wants his readers to remember, that day in the future, when Jesus comes back. That gives proper perspective to the areas that were included in our reading this morning. gives proper perspective to everything in the meantime, in the present. That's true, of course, that Jesus' first coming was decisive. It split history into two. It changed our calendar from B.C. to A.D. Um, so that first Easter weekend that we'll be celebrating in a couple of weeks' time uh, changes everything. On Good Friday, Jesus dies on the cross. He's rejected by the Jewish and Roman authorities. He's abandoned by his friends. More awesome still, he's forsaken by his Father in heaven as he bears our sins on his shoulders so that we can be forgiven and be assured of God's love towards us in him. Um, Remember the cry on the cross as he hung there. It's finished, completely dealt with, so that we can know acceptance with Almighty God. Then three days later, on Easter Day, to show that he had triumphed, that it was finished, he rose from the dead, never to die again. He's alive today. As I say, that first coming, culminating Easter, is critical, but in God's eternal plan, he doesn't advance straight to the conclusion of history at that point. God, if you like, presses pause 
And not until the second coming will we see the full glory which was won at Jesus' first coming. And in the meantime, 2,000 years and counting have passed. So the last chapter of the plan is already unfolding. There's a little phrase that came in our reading about the last days. They've begun. Um, Sometimes people talk a bit loosely about the last days. I don't mean when I say the last days have begun. I'm not referring to COVID-19 and the invasion of Ukraine as if this particular epoch now is particularly evil and it presages the end imminently. Some people talk that way. I mean that theologically speaking, after the first coming of Christ, nothing more needs to be done after the cross and resurrection in one sense for the defeat of evil except the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And the last days are theologically that chunk that runs between the two comings of Christ. And in the meantime, God has pressed pause, and our part is to make good use of the time and to wait actively and patiently in the meantime, in the last days. That's a perspective that affects daily life in detail for all of us. People used to say that the last two bits of a Christian's body to be converted were their right foot and their pocket. Their pocket because that was where you kept your money, and your right foot presumably was because that's what you used to press down the accelerator pedal in the car. Some people find that uh, bit of their anatomy doesn't get converted very quickly at all. Now I want to adapt that uh, old saying slightly with our verses in James in mind and ask, has your Christian faith converted your diary yet? And has your Christian faith converted your wallet yet? I'm aware that in a technological age, diaries and wallets don't happen quite so much, but I was encouraged at the 9 o'clock service, 9.30 service, that quite a few people still use both of them. So I hope you know roughly what I'm referring to when I uh, refer back to those things. The second coming of Jesus is what makes a difference in both those areas, our year planners, our filofaxes it might have been in times past, our diaries, our wallets, our bank balance, our finances. I hope you get the point I'm making. Has your Christian faith converted your diary yet? That's the first question I wanted to ask. James imagines a scene, and he's quite good at painting little sort of mental pictures, isn't he? Imagine a bunch of business people, and they're crowding around a map, and they're discussing plans together. Somebody points to a city on the map, says, how about this place? Look, it's perfect. It's got really good river and road communication. That's the place to go, and nobody else is doing our business there, from what I can tell. If we relocate business to that place, we are sure to make a profit. Agreed, everyone? Heads around the table. Okay, we should pack up and move this afternoon, actually, but let's say we'll go tomorrow at the latest. Some sort of scene like that, he imagines, isn't it? Now, it's worth pondering what James isn't condemning there. He's not condemning private business enterprise. He's not condemning making plans. There's plenty in the Bible about using biblical wisdom to think through how we live our lives and make plans. There's stuff you could find in, in, in the Bible about all these different topics, making plans, 
moving to a, a, a new market they talk about there, don't they? Making money. That sort of thing is fine. A good plan should probably include all the different elements that are referred to in James chapter 4, verse 13 there. A start time, a location, a goal, a target date for completing. Those aren't the things that are the issue here particularly. He's alerting them to the pride that often goes with that kind of planning or aspiration for success. So he says, all such boasting is evil, verse 16. It's their presumption that's in view, not their planning. They presume that they've got the timetable right, that they've got the time available today, tomorrow, one year that they can make choices and deliver on their plans. We'll make money. We're bound to succeed in their thinking. That's presumption. What practical steps towards humility does he encourage? I wonder if you spotted them as uh, those first few verses were read. No, two or three there. For a start, acknowledge your ignorance. He says, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. We don't know what a day may bring forth. That reading in Matthew 6 had it. Acknowledge your ignorance. We don't know what the future holds. You know that high-pressure life insurance salesman that makes the sort of typical pitch. They're actually right when they do it. That, that sales pitch that goes like this. If you don't want to buy a policy right now, that's fine, they might say. I'll give you tonight to think about it. You call me in the morning if you wake up. That's right, isn't it? We don't know. Life is uncertain. It's short. Our frailty is another thing we could add to this list of things to acknowledge. Acknowledge our ignorance and our frailty. We're like a mist, he says, that vanishes. I prepared the sermon on Friday. Little shelf was covered in mist at um, 9 o'clock in the morning. I think the mist lingered till. By 10 a.m., it was glorious sunshine. The sun always shines in Little Chelford. <laughs> but, but a mist that vanishes. Then alongside our frailty, acknowledge God's omnipotence. If it's the Lord's will, we will do such and such. That's what you should say, says James. Because he and he alone has the power to affect his plans and purposes. Our planning is always iffy. I mean, that'd be true for the most ungodly, immoral, foolhardy plan. It's always got an if attached to it. There aren't elements of control that can all be covered every time by people. But even, he might say, a godly, moral, and wise plan is only provisional. The best plans. So Christians shouldn't say, for example, look, we've prayed about this long and hard, and we know that God's going to bring it about. What happened to the if in that sentence? Spiritual planning is good. It's commended in the Bible elsewhere. But even then, it's not 100% certain. Nothing in the future is certain. Well, that's not quite true, is it? The return of Christ is certain. We can't guarantee to make any appointment we have put in our diaries. But Jesus' second coming is the one appointment no one will be able to miss. Everybody will make that meeting. Um, 
more certain that event than any other event in our diaries. What's the link, you might be wondering, with verse 17, the last verse of chapter 4? Let me read it again. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Puzzling verse, isn't it? Particularly the logic. Let me say tentatively what I think is the link. The person who leaves God out of their diary is somebody that thinks that time is theirs and theirs alone. And therefore, in that situation, it's easy to neglect things that they should be doing just to make plans for what they want to do. So... They've got their priorities, their plans, their deadlines to live to. And priorities imply posteriorities. I don't know if that word exists or not. Things that you put second or lower down the list. And they may be good things and they may actually be the very things that God is calling you to. And that neglect, says James, is a sin. It's not a sin of commission, where I do something wrong, I commit a sin of disobedience to God's known standards. This is a sin of omission, where I omit to do something that I should. I know what's good, I fail to do it. I fail to love God and my neighbor as I should, all because my business causes me to prioritize my plans and choices over other things. My sister-in-law has taught me a valuable lesson. She lives in America Um, she's always calling on people to help with various sort of community projects she's involved in. Whenever anyone tells her they're too busy, she says to herself, and occasionally she's quite direct, she'll say it to them, you are exactly as busy as you want to be. It's a myth that some people have more time than others. We've all got the same amount of time as anyone else, 60 minutes in the hour, 24 hours in the day. We are all as busy as we choose to be with the minutes that we have at our disposal. We do with our time what we actually want to do. So if I know that I'm meant to make time, for example, to meet with God daily, and I don't because I have a hectic schedule that day, that that reflects my choices, my planning, my prioritizes. If If I bargain with God and say, I know I ought to join uh, a midweek group for fellowship with other Christians. But it's just at the moment it's really difficult to do. The competition from business rivals is really intense at the moment. We've got this deal to sort out and I can't really fit it in at the moment. Or it might be something else. I have to wait till the, the daughter's wedding is over and I hope I'll be able to fit it in at that stage. No. If God is calling me to do something, that, in the business of life, as he set it up, trumps everything in one sense. And I'm not saying that there are never seasons of life where we're busy. I'm not trying to say that. But when I know that what God wants me to do is clear, if I neglect it because I'm just living out my priorities and plans, that's a sin, he's saying. Because if you like, I'm, 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 I'm rewriting the, the plans for my life. Time is God's gift to us for us to do good things. And if we pursue our goals and plans and don't do the good God is calling us to, he says that is sin. We're taking God's position 
and setting our priorities for ourselves. We're quietly saying to God, don't tell me how to run my life. So that's a question. We might want to debate that. We had some interesting discussion about how not to fall into legalism about that, um, the sort of setting of priorities in the 9.30 service. But uh, I think that the basic push of it is clear. God's will is the predominating force in my life and in my diary and in my planning, therefore. Has your Christian faith converted your diary yet? Secondly, has your Christian faith converted your wallet yet? Verses 2 and 3, let me read them again of chapter 5. I'll read from verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. This is very strong language, isn't it? Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and your silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. And in verses 2 and 3 there, he highlights three different areas where wealth was located in that economy at that time. And in each case, he's saying, here's why you've got to weep and well. Corrosion has set in in each of those three different areas. Food which could be crops or flocks, I suppose. And in this case, the food has ended up being thrown out. It's rotten. It's wasted. If you want a more modern spin, it's a bit like all those pigs tragically slaughtered, but not making their farmers any bacon, as it were. One area of food. Clothes, which in this bit are, are eaten up by moths. I was reminded of um, Archbishop Quashi in, in Nigeria. He, he has a lovely wife called Gloria who is adopted and fostered tens of, um, oh, lo- loads of children in their married life together. She told a story against herself, Gloria, where in Nigeria the persecution against Christians had been unrelenting and she had saved a bunch of clothes to cheer up their huge family and she put all these clothes safely away in a suitcase. She was going to bring them out and make everybody have a smile on their face. And uh, when she, the grand opening happened, she opened it up and she found that a moth had chomped through every layer of clothes from top to bottom in the suitcase. She tells the story against herself. I mean, it was devastating for her and the family when that happened, in one sense. But it is actually, this is why she tells it against herself, it is what the Bible leads us to expect, in a way, that moths do do that in our world today. Don't put your hope in clothes or your hopes will end up in tatters. Then silver and gold, another area which has corroded. People might say, well, precious metals don't degrade like that. That's the point of why they're valuable, isn't it? Well, they may not rust in Earth's atmosphere, but in the atmosphere of heaven, they corrode. They disappear into nothing. And you get that grim idea in our reading here. That corrosion attacks the owner's flesh as well. Now, what's he saying? He's not saying, the Bible isn't sort of simplistic like this. He's not saying that wealth is evil, that everybody with a bank account that's uh, booming is on the road to hell. He's not saying that. The lifestyle is the issue. What are the marks of an unconverted wallet that he lists here? Well, you can see them in verses 1 to 5, 1 to 6 of that uh, chapter. 
greed for a start, hoarding wealth in the last days. And that's pretty challenging, isn't it? I guess most of us were in a situation where, without really noticing it and necessarily setting ourselves up, we gain wealth year on year. If we aren't doing that, we'd all like to. Uh, maybe a recession is making that harder, but generally the tendency will be for us to accumulate in quality and quantity. And that sort of hoarding, accumulation, James says when the clock is ticking, when we're in the last days, doesn't make sense. So greed, hoarding wealth in the last days. Exploitation, he mentions. Do you see the little bit there where there's a failure to pay the wages? Look, verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. So they're crying, and you're not listening, but God hears. The judge in heaven, he knows. I guess in lean times economically, or leaner times economically, we better get used to the pressures that employers and employees are under with wage cuts and redundancies. P&O is just one of many such disputes we're likely to see. And you may well have felt the chill winds uh, long before this latest oil crisis at the moment. Or the exploitation may take more subtle ways. I was just trying to reflect on the sort of uh, mood music we've had since COP26 and the uh, gentle encouragement from aid agencies opening our eyes to the consequences of our lifestyle. I think we ought to welcome that rather than grumble about it. Because the fact that we're generally in the West affluent, that opens the door to commercial carelessness and to insensitivity about what we owe to others and what they need. And we mustn't be deaf to that. God isn't deaf to it. There's a sort of don't know, don't tell approach, I think, in my mind. I often think I don't really want to know how what I'm doing affects global neighbours. We sort of hope nobody asks, what's the effect of me using this product in this way? Or where did this that I'm using come from? And we ought to ask those questions. Exploitation. Another marker. Indulgence and sensuality. So he says, does he not, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Or that very chilling phrase, you've fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. Another image from animal husbandry. Only here, we are the fattened calf that's heading off for slaughter if we live for luxury and self-indulgence. There are plenty of warnings you get um, from the medical profession about the dangers of obesity and it being a killer. And there are warnings aplenty about how not to dig our own graves physically with knives and forks. Obesity is a killer, but what about the day of slaughter for luxury living if luxuries cause us to live for ourselves and the here and now and we've forgotten all about God verse 6 is a bit of a puzzle again 
Uh, it, it's probably a catch-all. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Could be judicial corruption, so they've been condemning innocent people in courts, or it could be a general truth that when the rich live selfishly, they do so at the expense of the poor. In fact, at the expense of the poor's very lives. So that is James's portrait of the unconverted wallet. You remember the rich young ruler that Jesus met. It wasn't so much that he had riches, but that his riches had him. And that often will happen to us if we're in the grip of money. It'll twist our concept of justice. It'll sap our moral fiber and our judgment. We really need to remember that wealth is corruptible and perishable. And more even than that, to remember God's judgment, that we're living in the last days, that Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, is at the door, he'll return. And our life now is just the next step before eternity. So if we live for wealth, then our riches' corrosion will testify against us, says James. Weep and wail. And if that language sounds extreme to us, then it probably shows that our wallets aren't yet converted. Money's got hold of us. Now, let's come back to where we started, the verse you don't have in front of you if you don't have a Bible open, verse 7. Be patient until the Lord's coming. That's, that's really helpful because it would be possible for people to just dismiss James and say this is just a sort of socialist, liberal lefty, um, utopia, a human utopia he's talking about. It is not. It's about God's kingdom and the Lord's return. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. He is the one whose standards will be enthroned, whose good and just standards will be returned. And that day when Christ comes again, must change the way we handle our diaries and our wallets this day, now. That day changes everything. Jesus is going to come back, and it will be like those signs at closing time on shop doors. The door of history, the sign will be changed from open to closed, and trading will be over at that point. And I suppose there might be unfinished business in the office that day, but it won't matter. The question is, will you settle things on the issues that really matter, on your eternal relationship with him? For those who don't know Jesus, meeting him that day will be awful, however well-off or successful they are in life. It'll count for nothing. If we already know him now, then that day will be the continuation of the best things of this life that we know him, that we enjoy fellowship with his people, and with the end of all that messes up life in this world. And it'll make all the things that we have to struggle with now pale into insignificance. This world is, as C.S. Lewis put it, shadowlands. That world, when Christ comes again, will be the solid reality. So be patient, says James, my brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Shall we pray together?
we thank you, Lord, that that day is not in doubt and we want to yield control of our lives afresh to you this morning, particularly our, our diaries, our planning, and our cash flow, whether times are lean for us or we're in plenty at the moment. We want to yield control of that situation farther to you. And we pray as we've already prayed and when we said the Lord's Prayer. Father, your will be done in both those two areas, in our plans, the disappointments maybe, in our prosperity or otherwise, we want to pray your will be done and we trust you, Father, and your timing that your way is best. We pray you'd help us to live what we believe and not to fall short of it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.